Welcome to the Explain podcast, a podcast where next generation sequencing techniques are explained to me by Daniel. That's me, because I'm a bioinformatician and Julia is a physicist who joined us recently at the sequencing facility. We are two colleagues from the Next Generation Sequencing Competence Network and we work at the West German Genome Center in Düsseldorf. Okay, Julia, so I promised that we do solid sequencing at some point and we are doing it now. So ID or just solid? How do people call it? Sequencing by oligonucleotide ligation and detection sequencing. That makes sense, right? Pfft. Well, if you will explain me what does it mean, then <laughs> for sure it will. Okay, so solid sequencing is or more on the later actually was a short read sequencing technology. What company did it, Julia? Ah, uh, yeah, this is Life Technologies. Mm -hmm. This is a US company, right? Yeah. What else? So they appeared in 2008, and then there was something also with Invitrogen and applied biosystems. Yeah, it's, it was for a short time called ABI solid sequencing. Ah, that's why. Yeah, yeah. Okay, ABI because applied biosystems. Yeah. This company was a pretty successful one. When they merged, they had almost 7 billions of worth, right? Euros, dollars, apples? Uh, dollars, yeah, it's US, I mean. Okay. And they had, yes, people, of course, this one I googled, about 10,000 employees, actually. And they owned more than three and a half thousand licenses and patents. Long story short, so from 2008, when they merged, till 2013, they had their own name. They basically worked as ABI. What happened in 2013? Exactly. We all know about Thermo Fisher. Right. And Terma Fisher negotiated to buy Life Technologies in 2013. And that's how this ABI basically went under the umbrella of Terma Fisher. Mm -hmm. And it was acquired for almost 14 billion dollars. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of money. Yeah. You know, for all these <laughs> companies in biotech, as one single person, you cannot really comprehend. Thinking about how many laboratories, how many research groups are they uh, working for and, and providing the services and providing the sequencing possibilities, then, of course, you could end up with, with such a solid number. <laughs> <laughs> solid word game here. <laughs> <sighs> what solid is? Let's go first from the title, because first you read it like a solid, and then you realize that Actually, they put an, a small I there. So it's mm -hmm. like soul and then I and then uh, capital D. Yep. So why is that? So, so again, sequencing by oligonucleotide ligation and detection. Ligation is two letters in that acronym and it's LI. So that's really important, the ligation here, because... Solid is not sequencing by synthesis. Mm -hmm. So the information what base comes after the other base sequence, you sequence by ligation and not by synthesis. So with Illumina, with pyro sequencing, we had a certain signal detected at or shortly after base incorporation, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right. And solid sequencing is different in that regard. It's not sequencing by synthesis, it is? Sequencing by ligation. Okay, and now yeah. we are going to ligation because I don't know what that is. It's not a DNA polymerase. It does not synthesize DNA. It does only ligate DNA, which is sticking one piece of DNA to another piece of DNA. It's not single DNA nucleotide gets incorporated into the complementary DNA strand one after the other, but it's 
a piece of DNA that gets glued to another piece of DNA. And this piece of DNA is not one single nucleotide, but it's multiple. That's the important part. Here. And it's not complementary one. So it's like no, no, it needs a random it, one. <laughs> so here it gets complicated. It needs to be complementary because otherwise it wouldn't be able to ligate. Yeah? The ligation happens with an enzyme. What what do you think? How is that enzyme called? <laughs> <laughs> I, I started to think about like, you know, from this luciferase and polymerase, <laughs> what can happen with ligase? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a case. Before 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 you proceed, ligation, li ligation. Ligation. Let's say ligation. Yeah, people forgive us if we are telling it wrong, but we are going to refer to this one as ligation. Is it also with it should be ligation because it's is it about ligand? Ligation is the joining of two nuclear acid fragments through the action of an enzyme. The discovery of DNA ligase dates back to 1967. So at the point that solid sequencing was developed, people knew about this enzyme that can glue two complementary pieces of DNA together. So, okay, imagine we have a piece of DNA, let's say 50 base pairs, mm -hmm. single-stranded DNA. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to one end, we ligate, glue, one part of DNA that we already know. Mm -hmm. It's basically an adapter, adapter we had before. What is an adapter, Julia? What does an adapter <gasps> in real life do? Oh, wait, what was that? Are you awake, Julia? How much coffee did you drink today? Nothing! <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> See? <laughs> Too hot for a coffee. Oh, I could have a nice coffee. One fragment of DNA that you want to sequence. Eh? You want to find out the sequences DNA pieces. Yeah. A, C, T, and? G. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> to each of those ends of the DNA fragment from your sample, from your firefly that you want to sequence or person, you ligate to one end one specific adapter and to the other another specific adapter. Mm -hmm. We are only now talking about preparing the DNA for solid sequencing. I'll call this one here P1 and on the other end we call the adapter P2. I will simplify this DNA strand with adapter P1 and adapter P2 now as just a single black string just to make it simple for you. Let's keep it at that. Imagine we have a, an organism. We isolate its DNA mm -hmm. from a lot of cells. You take your salt water and isolate the DNA, and then you have a lot of DNA. Yeah. That's not from one cell, but from multiple thousands or even millions of cells, all the accumulated DNA you have in one bucket. And they could be even from different cell types, right? Yes, yes, they could. And now we start to fragment the DNA. So we have a soup of different sizes of DNA, small, big, very big, very small. And we fragment the DNA, make the big pieces smaller. That can be by sonic fractionation, by enzymes or by chemistry, where we break the DNA in, we hope, exactly 100 base pair pieces. Uh, you hope. Can you filter out like the very short ones? Yes. Do you remember gel electrophoresis yes. where we can sort out DNA by its size? Uh, yes, but isn't it just the diagnostic in a way, what, what you're doing there with this gel? There are different ideas. Because of first you need kind of to centrifuge or to do whatever, and then you have these different batches, and then you're looking at them, at, at the gel, and then you see, okay, the batch two, after centrifuging, I don't know, for half an hour, gives a good length of DNA. No? You have a soup of your... Isolated DNA, yeah. different length of DNA. Yeah. All the long and the short fragments you cut into hopefully 100 mm -hmm. 
base pair fragments. Yeah, but it's not possible that you really cut it not only exactly, but you also cut out different endings that are maybe only one, two, three base pairs or something you failed to cut. Yes, the sizes are not perfect, but we will end up with a distribution of where most DNA fragments are around 100 base pairs, plus and minus. And normally you end up with Gaussian or something. Yeah, with mm -hmm. a normal distribution of the size. Okay, And there are chemistry-wise or there are enzymes or there are workflows where you can sort out the really long and the really short fragments. We discard those. So in the end, we have a really steep and 90% plus of our DNA is where we need it to be. 100 base pairs plus minus 10. For those fragmented DNA pieces, we add two short fragments of DNA, mm -hmm. P1 and P2. And those we ligate to the now single-stranded DNA. Yeah? So after we have the DNA pieces with a certain length, we then make sure that we end up with single strands. How do you think we can make DNA single strand? The duration? <laughs> yeah, exactly. A single strand of DNA, and we attach those P1 and P2 adapters. Mm -hmm. So we have now roughly 100 base pairs of our sample DNA, the original one, and we have P1 and P2 attached to each of those ends. Mm -hmm. One end has P2, one end has P1. Mm -hmm. That's the optimal case. Okay. Next, we will talk about beads. We had them previously in the pyro sequencing. Yeah. And the idea is that we have a very small nucleus of some polystyrene or some plastic, let's say. Mm -hmm. A ball of plastic on which we were able to glue short fragments of DNA. Using adapter onto. one or adapter two? The complementary of P1 is glued to those beads. Mm -hmm. So if we have now millions of DNA fragments with P1 and P2 in a watery solution, mm -hmm. and we put several millions of those small DNA glued P1... Complementary part? Complementary sequence on them mm -hmm. on top, so that most of those beads do not find a DNA piece, but most of them are empty. We have so much more beads that only 10% of the beads get one piece of complementary DNA from our DNA fragment with P1 and P2 attached to it. Is there a specific reason why do we want to have such a huge amount of empty beads? Yes, it's about we only want one piece of DNA per bead. We don't want two. And for this, we need to play with oversaturation, that the probability is really small that two fragments end up on one bead. Can't you just glue only one adapter on one bead? Yes, but we need to do a PCR. We need to amplify this, the signal once again. Ah, you sneaky people. <laughs> okay. We need to do PCR again. And thus we, we need for every bead that is lucky enough to find one DNA piece floating around. One piece gets attached to one end and then we do a PCR. And in the best case, then every DNA piece glued onto that bead has the end result, the same DNA fragment, including the P1 that is glued to the bead. Right. Then our actual sample DNA. Yeah, and P2. And P2 at the other end. Mm -hmm. That is important here. Yeah, P2 is for all the fragments, is on the outside. The mm -hmm. So it's a hairy ball now. Mm -hmm. And the end of every hair is defined and we know it. It's yeah. P2 sequence. Mm -hmm. Okay. So and it's also, and they are the same length, of course. Yes. In the ideal case. Why, why, why? In the ideal case, wait a sec. If you do PCR of only this one piece on the beat, then you should get exactly the same everywhere Every time, on yes, the beat. but you forget that you're working with enzymes and enzymes are never perfect. Some break up, fragments are shorter. At some beat PCR cycle, we maybe don't have enough nucleotides. Uh -huh. So the DNA synthesis stops, right? So this is not perfect. Oh, mutation. 
<laughs> there is a PCR bias. We will talk about this mm -hmm. at another point, but not today. Anyway, we've got those hairy PCR balls now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Plastic in the middle, DNA attached to it, and we have the P2 looking at the end of each hair. Right. Of every ball starts with only one DNA fragment. We really have to oversaturate mm -hmm. with those plastic balls. That means that most of those beads don't have any DNA attached to them at all. And what will happen with this? Do you want that to sort it away? Exactly. That is the next step. So we now need to figure out a way where we can sort our beads in with DNA on it and without. And the problem is that the density of the ball with the DNA or without the DNA is pretty much the same. So we cannot do it on density. Mm -hmm. But there's another trick. We know the sequence of the end of each hair, right? Mm -hmm. Of those hairy balls. So next step is we introduce another ball. <laughs> we introduce another bead. That's, that's what it's called. And it has, again, DNA fragments glued to it. But those fragments are now compatible or complementary to P2. Mm -hmm. So now those balls, the new balls, let's call them ball number two, those will attach... Yeah, to the free endings of so P2 adapter, basically. Of the balls that only have DNA on them and not to the balls that don't have DNA because P1 and P2 are not complementary to each other. And then if you have multiple complementary adapters on this new introduced ball, then it means that they will, un let me call it uncontrollably, connect to P2 on all these ball connections? That's not important. It just needs one. It just needs one or two connections that's stable enough because now we have the DNA between two balls. On the one end there is ball one and on the other end there is ball two, right? We have ball one attached to P1 and on the other end of DNA fragments for some fragments of the hairy DNA ball after PCR, we have a ball two attached to P2. And the cool thing is that those P2 complementary balls, those have a very different density compared to the balls that we used in the first place with P1. But anyhow, if you would connect the second ball, doesn't matter which density it is, then you make the first ball with DNAs heavier already, aren't you? Because it will be kind of two balls at once. Even with the same mass. You think that it will clump together, right? Yes, that is my problem. That's why I tried to, to explain it to you, yeah? <laughs> so that when you have a lot of free P2 complementary parts on the second ball that you introduce, mm -hmm. then there could be multiple connections to the first ball, and then maybe the third and the first ball also will connect in the same way, and then you have like this cluster of whatever, maybe tens or maybe even hundreds of them clumped together. Mm -hmm. And then basically, what, what do you have? Aggregate. <laughs> yeah, you have aggregate, but that doesn't matter. Because in the next step, again, I explained that the ball two has, a compared to ball number one, a much lower density. So it's really light. So what technique in the laboratory do you know to distinguish parts made different by their density, Julia? Vortexing? <laughs> <laughs> Centrifuging. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you have now this hairy ball one with DNA attached to one end of the DNA, also to ball two. And that makes the ball one with DNA attached to ball number two. And now if we centrifuge, yeah, we put it into a vial or a bottle or a plastic cup, no one, no one cares, that's not important, but we spin it really fast, 
really, really fast. And that makes it separating the heavy elements at the bottom to the very light elements at the top. But then heavy elements will be exactly our clusters, our clumps. No, because the ball two is very light and ball two is now connected to ball one and the DNA. And yeah. that in aggregate will be much, much lighter than ball one with no DNA on it. How can it be? <laughs> Centrifuging is not on mass, but on relative density. Yeah, actually, it's about density. Kind of by okay. adding things, you make it lighter, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> let, let, let's imagine that this ball one is really tiny. We add millions and millions of those to oversaturate our DNA that each ball gets only one DNA initially attached. And then we do a PCR and then we have this hairy ball with P2 looking at the end of every hair. This ball two here doesn't need to be the same size as ball number one. Yeah, yeah, it's much... It can be 10, 100 times bigger. Yeah, yeah, it's bigger, but it's lighter and then it works like a balloon. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the same as if you would take a baseball and attach it to 20,000 balloons full of helium. It mm -hmm. will float anyway. Okay, I accept your explanation. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Do so, you feel proud of yourself? <laughs> so the second ball here, yeah, what we call the lighter, bigger ball, the P2 attached ball, yep. that is actually polystyrene. Polystyrene, okay. Yeah, and it's coated. Yeah? So it's basically, there's a lot of P2 complementary DNA glued to it. And that's then what we have at the top of our DNA solution. Yeah? At the bottom, we will have this ball number one with no DNA or some DNA or not really what we want. And at the top, we will have this ball number one with DNA that is also attached to ball number two. Mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm. makes it very light. And then you take the supernatant for further investigation. Yeah. All the rest you discard. So like the sedimentation that you have, empty, yeah, or yeah, yeah. empty balls or balls with broken pieces of DNA strands. Yeah. Okay. So you, you can also afterwards, after you separated the good ball ones from the bad ball ones, the empty ones, you can take the connection between one and two and you can cut it because... Using the enzyme. Using an enzyme, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so chemically or enzymatically, we at some point disconnect the ball one and ball two. We cut through the P2 sequence because we don't need that anymore. Mm -hmm. But we still need that P1 sequence and, this, and the whole DNA thing that we PCR amplified. So now we have only ball one left with a lot of DNA of the same sequence. Mm -hmm. And that is what we then use for sequencing in the next step, okay? Okay, so just the same balls with P1 connected to the ball and P2 is freely floating. Yeah, that is already free floating or we cut it off already because it was attached to ball number two and we don't need ball number two for sequencing. Then you will have random adapters or without adapters, like DNA strands. So the P1 on is still attached to the ball one? Yeah, but P2, I mean, P2 at some point it will be cut off by enzyme, but it still will be there if it was not connected to another ball. P2 will be... Right, so at the supernatant, we still have the ball number two, only the ball number two not attached to anything, right? And this as well, could be. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> How is that explained? I'm not sure they will influence your sequence at all, because anyhow, they have just an adapter. They don't really have DNA strands, DNA sequences. On right. Them. So in the end, the ball number two will have no useful DNA attached to it. So we are going to remove it. Yeah. So it's like some impurity that at some point... Some, okay, somehow, there are ways to filter it out. Yeah. They are based on the different properties of hairy ball number one and 
not so much hairy ball number two that is much lighter, we are able to disconnect them, cut the DNA and sort out ball number two. Mm -hmm. So we have only ball number one and only the hairy ball number mm -hmm. one. So only the ones with the DNA attached to it later. And those are we then using for sequencing, okay? What about we call them beats? <laughs> <laughs> okay, beat number one, fine. We call them beats. One thing that I forgot, we, we have this beat number one with DNA on it, and those are PCR copies of the same DNA fragment in the best case. Yeah? Yes. And we call those polonies. It's a mixture of colony and... <laughs> <laughs> colony and polony. <laughs> Poly and colony. Yeah. <laughs> polony. Fine. Okay. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> But now let's get to the sequencing. So we have those balls with the polonies, yeah? mm -hmm. the bead number one with P1, our DNA fragment, and we glue them or we stick them onto a glass slide. That I'm looking forward to drawing sketches for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> you are currently drawing episodes of those sketches. The polony. <laughs> the Bolognese. And w in the best case, we have millions of those successfully isolated mm -hmm. beads with DNA on them. We stick them onto a glass slide. Using another adapter? We didn't have any other adapter no, to, no, no. to just glue them. We, we had P2, but P2 was used. Those hairy balls get attached to a glass slide. A glass slide should sound familiar to you because a glass slide is, for example, where the Illumina random lawn started. Yeah, it's like just but, substrate, glass but, but substrate. This, but this time we don't stick DNA to the glass slide, but we have those beads that we stick to the glass slide. But on those beads, there is on each bead the same DNA molecule, but hundreds or even thousands of times. Yeah, okay? the polonies. Yeah, exactly. So each bead glued to the glass slide is for one polony of DNA. Mm -hmm. That's roughly P1 and let's say 100 DNA base pairs. Okay? Good. Good. Now comes the really complicated part of this sequencing here. What bases are there? Do you remember in DNA? Can you name them? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> go for it. Adenosine, mm -hmm. cytosine, mm -hmm. guanine, mm -hmm. and T, or the thymine. 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 But as usual, peasants, we call them T, G, A. And G. And G. I had G in the front. T, C, A, and T, C, A, and G. Okay. <laughs> We are now at the next level of nucleotides. We are able to synthesize not only nucleotides where you remember that one base can only be complementary to one specific other base, right? We had those base pairs that yes, give us we, the information. Yes, we had this double or triple... Hydrogen bonds. Hydrogen bonds. Hydrogen mm -hmm. bonds, exactly. So what if I told you that while developing solid sequencing we had access to bases that bind to every other base. Do we mean the same like this bubble? No, 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 no. We can chemically engineer a compound. It's not adenine, it's not cytosine, it's not guanine or whatever. It's just a compound that you stick to the backbone of DNA. So the phosphate ribose, deoxyribose. And this is roughly the size of another typical DNA base, but it can do either two or three hydrogen bonds and it can bind it can be complementary to a c t and g 
It's so, like a joker in any card game. Yes, yes, that exactly that. So the base joker, okay? So people developed in a lab a base joker. Mm -hmm. Also, solid sequencing doesn't use one base joker, but it uses six. We use six base jokers. Why do they need so many? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. So um, before we get to the joker usage, we need some color encoding. Do you remember the four color chemistry with Illumina sequencing? Yeah, well, at least partially. <laughs> the idea was that every base corresponds to one color, right? We simplified it later with the three, two, and one color chemistry, but in the beginning we had one color means one nucleotide. Yes. Okay, so now there is one task for you. Let's say we have four colors, still the same, but now we want to encode two bases instead of one for each color. Two bases instead of one? Well, then you gotta go with intensity. Okay, you go to mix colors. You go to mix colors. You go to mix color. You're not going to mix colors. <gasps> You're going to have some color, something uncolored. You will have one color, but we will have one color for multiple combinations of the two bases. Okay, so red means either GC or TA, for example. Awful. We have for four bases. We have T, C, A, and G for the first base. And for the second base... It can also be T, C, A. Okay, and so G. you are creating the color matrix as a combination of colors depending on their appearance. Yes, with two nucleotides and each four bases, we can have 16 different combinations. Right. So, how do we come from four colors to 16 combinations? Yeah, we combine the colors. No. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I mean, if you have A is whatever blue color and G is red, then you get an intermix of these both. We can only have one color. So we cannot attach green to A and red to another A and then have the color be a mixture of those. Yeah, but if you have A as red and G as blue and then you will have A, G. Together. For each of those nucleotide thingies, we can only have one color. We can attach only one to the end and that's that's not even the end. We have After that we have six different bases that are joker bases. It's more complicated. Yeah, I, I want warned you about this. Okay, so the idea is that we still sequence one base after the other. Mm -hmm. yeah? Given we have a sequence T, A, C, G, T, C, A, G. And we know the sequence of P1 adapter. Mm -hmm. We start with a known base. Yeah, we know that... We know it starts with T. For example, mm -hmm. we know it, it starts with T. And since we already know one base of the D-nucleotide, there are only four possibilities left, right? Because we, we know that it's a T in the start. Mm -hmm. So it can be either TT, TC, TA, or TG. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that is, again, the four colors. Yeah. So these need to be different here. Okay. Mm. So we are here, red, green, for example, blue, and yellow. And... Once we know the first nucleotide, mm -hmm. then we can decide on the color, whether it was TT, TC, TA, or TG. And for that, we only need four colors. Does that make sense to you? Not yet, but I think I'm getting there. So continue talking. Maybe at some point I will okay, break. Okay, we, we, we have a thing with two nucleotides, one color. Yeah. And we start sequencing with one known base that is important. This year, we already know the T at the start. Mm -hmm. So we know that if the first D nucleotide signal is red, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, then we know because the first base was a T, and in that case, that the first case is a T, the second base with the red signal needs to be that specific one base. Mm -hmm. And so that way we go through the sequencing basically. Next time, for the next denucleotide, we now know that the next nucleotide is this specific base, and we don't know the next. It's again, since we know the first nucleotide, only four colors are needed, yeah, because we only need to encode four possibilities. After the second nucleotide, there can be either a T, C, or an A, or an G. Each nucleotide has its own fixed color, right? Or not? Because this is what I'm not sure about. So we have a table of TCAG in the x-axis and the y-axis also, TCAG. And the diagonal is one color. Yeah, so AA is the same color as CC, and GG is the same color also, and TT is also the same color. Okay. Mm -hmm. And again, for each of those denucleotides, since we started with a known nucleotide, we know the first one. Then four colors are left. We see one of those four colors, so we know the second nucleotide. Mm -hmm. So now we know the second nucleotide, where the second denucleotide starts. So we already know the second nucleotide. And for the third, again, we have only four colors that are possible because we know the second nucleotide. So this third is one of four possibilities one of four colors, so we know again the next base, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so on and so on and so on. This gets more complicated, though, because this is not really two nucleotides bound to a color. It's actually eight. Mm -hmm. It's eight nucleotides because we have two nu nucleotides, then we have three joker nucleotides, okay, and the, then we have another three nucleotides. And those last three nucleotides are also joker nucleotides, but that is where the color is connected. Okay, so the shiny shiny is not directly on the TA, the denucleotide that we are sequencing by ligating the Sewell piece of DNA and Joker bases onto the complementary DNA strand. But the fluorophore signal is attached to the very end of this in total eight nucleotide piece of DNA. We need this eight piece of nucleotide DNA length that the ligase actually can attach because two nucleotides is, I think, too, too small of a fragment for the ligase to work. So now these eight nucleotides that we're talking about, it's kind of beginning of sequencing. It's not because we were talking about the DNA strand that is about 100 mm -hmm. bases. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, so now, and now you kind of restricted yourself only to eight with a color already. At eight one with end. a color. And this color only actually gives us information about one nucleotide. So we know the first nucleotide. The second is the one that we actually sequence. And the next six nucleotides are basically useless to us. They don't give us any information. They are joker nucleotides. But after we detected the flow force signal here, we can actually cut off the last three nucleotides where the flow force was attached. And that is where the next denucleotide can attach. But you see here, we have, a, we have a hole here, right? Because we know the first nucleotide. The second is what we attached and sequenced then with the color signal. But then we have one, two, three nucleotides that are still joker nucleotides and they are still attached to that DNA piece. Mm -hmm. So our next piece of information comes with the denucleotide of actually being five bases after. The first base we know before we start sequencing, basically. The second is the real one we sequence with the color, yeah, mm -hmm. because we know the first, the second gives us information, the color. And then we have this joker on position three, four, and five, also six, seven and eight. But six, seven, eight and the flow four, the color that is attached, we cut off then in an enzymatic step. So what is left over is the piece of the first base that we know, 
the base that we sequenced, and three other Joker nucleotides. So one to five, okay? And then we have another, where are another 95 bases in this yeah, case? Yeah, those, those we, we have now position five. And at position six, seven, eight, we had this three nucleotides with the color that get cut off and removed chemically. Yeah? Enzymatically, we remove them and get rid of them. But the next building block, the next nucleotide that we can attach, which has, again, two bases... Mm -hmm. then six joker bases and the color. That can only attach at position six. So we have a gap here mm -hmm. of nucleotides that we can't sequence this way. Okay. Because in the end, the ligase does attach those fluotides mm -hmm. and the next can only attach afterwards. So two real nucleotides and three joker nucleotides that get attached. And then only after position five, the next building block with two nucleotides and six joker bases can be attached with the ligase. So the problem is that we have a gap here of sequencing where the joker nucleotides attached, but we don't know which bases they are. Mm -hmm. How do we fill those holes with the same DNA strand being attached to multiple P1 places on the bead? We take this sequencing approach, but move it one nucleotide to the left. Now we start one nucleotide earlier. How can you do it if you already have the complementary DNA strands attached to, to the bead? And I mean P attached to the DNA one nucleotide before or after. All right. Yeah, so we, we have the same DNA molecule on each bead, but the sequencing, the ligation of those eight nucleotides starts at different positions. Okay. We have different starting points, and that's really important. And the starting points differ by five nucleotides, because five nucleotides is the gap between two of those probes, you know, with the two nucleotides, real nucleotides, then six joker nucleotides, of which remove three and the flow four signal. And by having these adapters at the different places within this five nucleotides gap, is it possible to clarify these dockers and then define what are the real nucleotides there? Or no. I'm, I'm not sure I got the point of the jokers like at all. Why do we need these jokers there? We need the length in order for the ligase to work. Because if the DNA part would be in the best case, of course, it would be only two nucleotides and one floor for attached. But that doesn't make the ligase work. It needs to be bigger. And since we have those joker nucleotides, it will attach the piece of DNA regardless because okay. only the first two nucleotides need, need to actually match. In this case, sequencing only goes for two nucleotides. And then we can, from the eight nucleotide probe, remove three and the flow four. We can't remove the whole thing. Yeah. And that is where the next cycle starts. Okay, again, only for two. Yes. And, and then you again cut away the... Last three and the flow four. Mm -hmm. And then again, and then again, and then again. So you have gaps of basically three joker nucleotides, the one nucleotide that you sequenced mm -hmm. and the one nucleotide that you need to know before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you do that with five different starting points, you covered every step okay. of the sequence. Mm -hmm. And that is the two base encoding with four colors. Complicated. Somehow it looks like, okay, clear. If you go like subsequently, then it should work. But it's a bit complicated for me to grasp. I don't know. I have a feeling of a huge randomness uh, of the of the process there, right? Because you have like this ball with, I don't know, thousands, millions of copies of DNA that surprisingly only have five nucleotides difference in length. And then at some point you are having this adapter that is cut kind of in the middle and then attached again from different sides. So the randomness is there because we don't control where the DNA attach. We don't control which balls have which sequence because otherwise you wouldn't sequence. And um, we later can anyway order the randomness 
by looking at the sequence. And we can again ligate not only P1 and P2, but we can in between add a barcode where we can again, based on the barcode sequence, yeah, we know that from P1 starting, we have 10 nucleotides that have a specific barcode. So CCAG is always sample one. So we know that if we remove the barcode and we have this specific sequence, then we can, can order it into that bucket for the sample. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So we don't control which sample binds to the glass where. Mm -hmm. And we have millions of random reads, of course. How do you know this exact barcode sequence? You introduce it? Yeah, you, you buy the barcode sequences and then you ligate them ah, before okay. you add the adapters. Okay, so you glue it on top of your DNA strand of interest. Yeah, you attach it basically. Yeah, exactly. And then you sequence whatever is on the substrate and then using the barcodes, you could say, okay, this part is for the sample one, this part for the sample two. Yeah, exactly. That is what has been done with uh, solid sequencing as well. The cost of solid sequencing was at that time competitive, mm -hmm. but this method didn't really scale. At this time, you mean 2008? A little bit later, but uh, we still have, I think, one machine standing around there somewhere. And two of my colleagues would be able to perform solid sequencing, uh, but it's not a gigabase. Prices are not competitive at all mm -hmm. anymore. They were at some point, but you see the Google having two real nucleotides and then six Joker nucleotides and blah, blah, blah. is much more complicated than the Illumina sequencing where you have, in the most simple case, you have one nucleotide with a stop signal and one color. That will be very interesting to listen once we are coming to the Illumina episode. We started with having DNAs, DNA pieces. Yeah, we isolated our DNA last time. Um, <laughs> we have a sample piece of DNA where we extracted DNA from species, from blood, from water, from tomato soup, I don't know. And we ligated maybe a barcode to all DNA pieces that we fragmented. We attached P1 adapter to one end and P2 adapter to the other mm -hmm. end. We then added those beads with P1 sequence, uh, P1 complementary sequence, such that the DNA will bind yep. to those beads. We took the hairy beads with P1 adapter and the DNA, made a PCR, and thus we had a really hairy ball of many of the same copies of DNA. And the free end of the DNA balls was a P2 adapter floating. And this P2 we used to attach to much bigger, lighter balls. And that way we could isolate the balls with DNA on them from the balls with no DNA on them, just based on their density. Yeah, we, we put it in a tube and turn it around really fast, such that mm -hmm. the centrifugal force actually separates the heavy from the light beads. And the light beads were those with the P1 attached and P2 attached to the lighter right. balls. Mm -hmm. We used those balls then with P1 only and attached them to our flow cell, to a piece of glass, where we could then detect flow force. And those flow force are attached to a DNA piece with two nucleotides. Mm -hmm. And according to a two-base color encoding, if we know the first base, it can only be one of four possibilities, mm -hmm. of which e each possibility is one color mm -hmm. that gets attached. Or each possibility, you mean each combination? Each combination where the starting point, so the first half of the combination is known, the first base. Yeah, yes. and if we have this combination of the same nucleotides, then 
it will be encoded as one color. So it doesn't matter if it's AA or TT or CC. It's all blue, for example. Exactly. It all yeah. will have uh, only one color. But we can distinguish AA from TT because we know the base before that. We know the starting point is a T and not an A, and thus it can be only TT. And this we know by sequencing... With an offset of five, so that exactly. we sequence the same DNA piece, but with starting position one, position two, three, and four. And thus we can fill the gaps that are left open with the joker bases in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We remove the flow four signal and three joker bases, and thus the gap between nucleotides that we actually sequence is five nucleotides. Is cool. five. And this sequencing technique has one huge advantage compared to pyro sequencing. Do you remember the do weakness? Remember? Do you remember a weakness of pyro sequencing? It had to do with the saturation of shiny shiny. Was it with this poly? Yeah. Come on, poly, poly. Tail? No, no, no. Poly nucleotides? Poly. Homo. Yeah, homopolymers. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> poly, poly. <laughs> exactly. So, so the, with pyro sequencing, the, we had a shiny shiny signal with A, and we did also have double the shiny, shiny signal with double A, but we had not really triple the signal strength with three A's. And the problem continues, right? So that if we have 18 A's, the signal is not really stronger than with 17 A's. Yeah, so, you, so there, there is no linear dependency and from anymore, this perspective yes. you cannot really say what exactly do you have. Yeah, so in the beginning we had linear dependency and that's good, but with the longer homopolymers, pyro sequencing had a huge problem there because we didn't really know it was not precise enough at some point of the homopolymer length. However, what do you think now of solid sequencing with the homopolymers? Okay, it always will show you the same color, once they are going through and they see each time the same nucleotide coming afterwards. But then since they're sequencing only one combination, like only these two nucleotides, mm -hmm. the problem I see that each kind of new sequence will not know from which part of this homopolymer I should proceed. Let's say if you have eight or, or more bases or nucleotides of the same type, for example, T. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then you have this 8 or 9 T, and then how does it know within your offset of these five nucleotides that it's jumping back and forth, so to say, to sequence? How does it know, am I now in the right, like, middle of all these homopolymers? So that's what I could think of. Good question. Um, the answer is that that is not an issue because the ligase, the enzyme that binds those DNA fragments then together, mm -hmm that works as the polymerase. It cannot jump between positions. So we need bases attached. And wherever the last base, whether it was a joker base or not, was attached, that is the starting point for the next step. So there is no rocking back or forth here. Okay. That's not a problem. Then from this perspective, we could say that homopolymers are a soft issue in solid sequencing. So in, ho in homopolymers, you would see then on all the five different starting points of the sequencing, you would see that at some point the blue color would be just consistent. Exactly, it would yeah. be blue, 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 blue. And so, because each time you check the T of the first one in another read that had this at, not at the first but at the second position, you would actually have a back check. So that made it actually really good with homopolymers. And that is today really fortunate that there are sequencing techniques who are homopolymer stable. So homopolymers were one of the main weaknesses of pyrosequencing. And for solid sequencing, it's not anymore. 
which okay. was really good. Mm -hmm. So in a way, one sequence technique could complement the other. Mm -hmm. However, what the problem is here with solid sequencing is a fully, completely different story. We had this hairy ball number one attached to ball number two at some point to differentiate between the balls with DNA and without DNA. Do you remember? Yes. Okay, so imagine that the DNA piece of 100 bases mm -hmm. is at some point complementary to itself when you bend it 180 degrees. Yeah, so you would hope that you have a linear DNA piece between bead one and bead two. So that you will not have something like a looping or some yes. cir circular, whatever, like single strand DNA that will bind to itself. Yeah, bind to itself. It's called a hairpin structure. Hairpin structure. Hairpin structure. Aha, uh -huh, okay. Yeah, because if you if your hair would do that, yeah, it yeah. Would, mm -hmm. anyway, imagine that we have this bead number one with the DNA attached to the glass slide. Mm -hmm. And those probes can, of course, only bind to single-stranded DNA. Yeah? If there is double-stranded DNA, there is nowhere where the ligase could attach those probes to. Yeah. So what if one piece of DNA is actually complementary to itself? It would, some part, it would just bend and make itself double-stranded. Mm -hmm. And being double-stranded means not accessible to your probes. Yeah, so you cannot sequence such... Exactly. Self-complementary short fragments would result in a hair loop, and a hair loop is not possible to sequence with solid sequencing because the probes cannot open this double-stranded DNA anymore and get in there and give you a signal, a color signal again. And to open it, you only can use denaturation, and in this case, you, you don't, don't do that anymore. You don't do that anymore. That's the problem here. I mean, you could do that, but I think uh, the ligase is not, as with the polymerase, for example, not temperature not stable. Not heat resistant. Yeah. And we also have no idea about this fluorophores. Right. We don't know that either. That was a weakness of the solid sequencing, which was not a weakness of the pyro sequencing. Or of Sanger. Also not Sanger. So with the demise of the sequencing technique, it, <laughs> you told before that this company... Life Sciences or ABI, yep. Applied Bio, Applied Biosystems Incorporated. Yeah, this uh, the the company was acquired, bought by what company? Thermo Fisher Scientific, by right? Ter Thermo Fisher. Yeah. It seems like Thermo Fisher is one company who just collects just buys everything <laughs> technologies. Yeah, true. And at the same point where they bought this solid technology, they already had another sequencing technique based on semiconductors that we will talk about next episode. What's However, the name for it once more? Of the semiconductor yeah. sequencing. Or you can call it semiconductor ah, sequencing. Okay. Okay. We, we will call it semiconductor sequencing because otherwise it will be too complicated later. Okay, so Thermo Fisher had now this solid sequencing and at the same time it also offered semiconductor sequencing. But at that point where semiconductor sequencing went big, there was already a small little giant growing up that was later bought by Illumina. Anyway, the, the story here is that solid could not compete. Solid sequencing reads could not actually reach 100 base pairs. Mm -hmm. the, the semiconductor sequencing had one major advantage compared to solid that the reads could be much longer. How much longer are we talking about? 100 roughly. Okay. With but, good quality. But it's still in the range of short sequencing, right? It's w all short reads. Yeah. Uh, so there, was, there were decades where only short read sequencing was possible, exception of course Sanger sequencing, but Sanger sequencing was only single read sequencing, so it was low throughput. Mm -hmm. So there were decades where in the high throughput sequencing there was only short read possible. That's not today, 
it changed in the last years. We have now two very good competing long read sequencing technologies. It's PegBio and? Nanopore. And Nanopore. Mm -hmm. And um, this all, the story with solid and semiconductor sequencing and also Illumina all just were before times of long read sequencing. Except, again, Sanger. That's nice to know. Yeah, I, I didn't have it in mind, this <laughs> structure, how sequencing really appeared, what came first. Somehow I thought, okay, they started with long and short sequencing and then both techniques worked in parallel, trying to reach uh, other goals. Yeah, so the solid sequencing, depending on throughput and stuff, and they, before they were bought by Temu Fisher, they, of course, tried to make more throughput, cheaper per gigabase, yeah, because otherwise other companies will just overtake you. Um, the solid sequencing sequencing run took a week. That was really a long time. And also, if we think about reagents that you need to buy there, most probably it's also pretty expensive. And yeah. this week, it's not unsupervised week, right? It's also a week where laboratory stuff also needs to be there and do some steps in between. No, the solid sequencing you fill up, press start, and then wait until the result is there because okay. the the chemistry like the probes and stuff they are all in pre-filled buckets that you put in the sequencing machine and that's it okay so the biggest problem is the length of the basis that it could sequence the length of the sequencing itself and the time efficiency yeah Super and that long. all resulted in high costs per gigabase at mm -hmm. that time mm -hmm. and also energy costs i mean the machine is running all this time <laughs> Energy costs is, <laughs> so I must say that the energy consumption of sequencing never really went down mm -hmm. because not only the amount of bases that you need to work with later, but also the computing time until the base call is there got more and more complicated because the machines got more and more sophisticated. I see. Yeah. Nice. The semiconductor sequencing that we are talking about next, that is sometimes still used. Ah, but it's already not that popular anymore. No, because still Illumina is... Okay. We will define that later. Okay. <laughs> we will <laughs> define what means better. <laughs> However, it, it was an important sequencing technique because the ligation that we had, you know, where we don't have a polymerase that attaches just one base to another in certain steps, that is a concept that just recently re-emerged from PacBio, for example, or other companies as Ultima Genomics also. Some ideas of this sequencing technique actually reappear. Yeah, and for sure such techniques like solid sequencing in this case, it's a necessary stepping stone for the next developments of the sequencing techniques in general. Sure, yep. And again, solid sequencing was one platform which introduced or helped the pressure to lower the prices per gigabase sequenced. Yeah, so it's really important that the price per gigabase gets cheaper and cheaper each year because that enables you to make bigger studies, better correlations, more samples, deeper sequencing, so you find out more. And also at this time, they gave a solution for homopolymers, how to deal with them. Yeah, so you, you could sequence um, with pyro sequencing. And if you had problems with homopolymers, what would you do? You would go to solid sequencing. Yeah, and then solve only this selected piece. Or the whole genome and just or the whole thing. layer both data types on top of each other, which is doable, easy. Yeah, from one side, it's kind of sad that it's not on the market anymore. From another side, it gave all the best ideas what <laughs> it had in this time, right? And then it kind of gave it as a heritage to the future techniques. Yeah, that's true. Amazing. 
Thank you very much. I hope it was interesting for you to learn about solid sequencing. The next one will be semiconductor. Was it interesting to learn about such an ancient technique? <laughs> <laughs> ancient and uh, dead technique at that point. We, ha we have to say that this sequencing technique is dead, but its ideas still live on. Yeah. Cool. Have a nice day and till next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>